right, right. Hey guys, can you can y'all give it up for the band? Man, they are crushing it. Crushing it. Alright. Alright. Well, how was y'all's afternoon? What was what was the uh, what was the most fun thing you guys did since since I last saw you guys? What you got? Air hockey. Air hockey? Anybody else? Dodgeball. Where'd y'all play dodgeball at? Gog. Not. No one played dodgeball. Okay. I want to be your friend. Whoever you went to play dodgeball with, I want to be in that group. I'm, what? What you got? Racing game. All right. Good deal. Well, I'm excited to, uh, to get back into the Word with you guys tonight. And uh, if you want to go ahead and get your, your Bibles out, we will open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you guys would take a minute, I'm just going to pray for us as we, as we get into this time. You guys pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for... God, every gift that we've had already this weekend, God, through worship, through friendship, through these games and the the food, the the family, God, your church, being in a safe place, God, all of it is a gift uh, from your heart, Lord. And so I pray now as we move towards your word on a, a difficult passage of scripture, God, would you give me help to teach it? Would you give my brothers and sisters, my friends in this room, Would you give them the ability to hear? Would you open our ears and our eyes and even our minds to hear what you might want to correct and teach us or maybe protect us from even in the future? Um, And so, God, we approach your word with joy but also with reverence. And I pray even now, would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. Do you know that Jesus is brilliant? That he's brilliant. Now, a lot of people think they want Jesus to save them. They look at, they look at, the, at the idea of the cross, and they say, well, I know, I know I'm bad. I know I've done bad things, and of course I want Jesus to save me. I want his cross to count for all the things I've done in darkness. I've heard it put before, um, one famous pastor said, if all of your sins tonight, I want you to think of maybe the top three, four, five things. Maybe the things that you are the most shameful of. Things that maybe you've never told anyone. Things that have been done to you or things that you've done to someone else. If all of those things in one moment were thrown up on a slideshow and you could see, and everyone in this room could see the worst things that you've done, I'm pretty sure you would sprint out of this room in horror and never come back. And so would I, and so would every leader in this room. And so I start off asking the question, do you know that Jesus is brilliant? Because all of us want the cross to count for the worst things about us, right? We want Jesus's cross to forgive us of, of the things we're most shameful of. But often, we don't want the wisdom and words and teaching of Jesus to confront us and to challenge us and to show us a better way to live. We just want him to cover our sins. We want, I've heard it put this way, we want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want him as Master. We don't want Jesus as Lord, the one who every single thing that he commands actually leads to our good and our flourishing. 
I was watching some Instagram reels the other night. Who loves football in here? All right. So I played college football. I coached football. So I'm laying on the couch and I'm falling asleep. And uh, this is dumb. Don't do that. All right. Go to bed. All right. But I'm laying on the couch and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through a reel. And all of a sudden I see Tom Brady walking down. Y'all know who Tom Brady is? All right. So I would argue Patrick Mahomes is, is going to this weekend maybe take over as the new goat or something. But Tom Brady, yeah. But Tom Brady has, what, six, seven Super Bowl rings, something like that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. Tom Brady's just walking down the road, and these popular guys on TikTok, they have this, this podcast where they just, like, confront famous people in the streets. And sometimes it's, like, super awkward. But they just run up to Tom Brady, and you think they're going to ask him, Tom Brady, what's it like being like the greatest quarterback ever? But they walk up to him, and they, they put a mic in front of his face. And I'm like, if I had one question to ask Tom Brady, I would not ask him this. I'm like, Tom, can you talk to us for a second? And he's like, yeah, what's up? And he's like, Tom, what is the worst mistake you've ever made? And he's like, what? He's like waiting on his Uber. He's like about to get in the car. And he's like, who are you guys, psychos? Like, and, but then he, he thinks for a second, and he's like, um, and Tom Brady's stammering, and he's stuck, and he's like, I don't know, that's a good question, and then he says, I mean, is anything really a mistake, and then he gets into, he gets into his taxi or his Uber, and he, he drives off. Now, earlier this year, sadly, Tom Brady uh, and his beautiful wife of many years divorced, and uh, there's a, a, a big uh, fight between them and things going on. Uh, he ended his career on kind of a, a lower note as compared to previous years. Tom Brady has went on uh, many, many different news channels, and they've asked him, after three or four Super Bowls, like, what else do you have? You're the greatest of all time. And there's, there's, if you go on YouTube and type Tom Brady existential crisis, he's asking himself, I'm at the top of the food chain. Like, I'm the greatest ever. And I'm not happy. He's, he's reached it all. And he's, he's not happy. He's even, and then later now in his life, he's asking, is there even anything as such as a mistake? Is, is a mis- are mistakes even real? Friends, I want to ask you a question. Why must the righteousness of God matter to us? Why do we need the gospel? It's because we we want to live in the real world. We want to live in the world where we know mistakes really do matter. There actually is a way that we can find happiness and joy and have purpose and meaning and all those things, but it's only going to come on the other side of if we'll actually do business with our mistakes and our wrongdoing. And so I want, I want to just review one thing from our previous uh, our talk this morning, all right? We talked about righteousness. If you weren't here this morning, this is how we defined the righteousness of God. We're looking at Romans 1, 16 and 17, and it says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Now, this is how I defined righteousness for us this morning. Righteousness is something that God is God is righteous, God is good, God is perfect and holy. But more than that, those who come to God in faith, it's, 
faith in Jesus, in his atoning work on the cross, in his perfect life, in Jesus' resurrection, righteousness is something that God also, say it with me, gives. It's something that he gives. The, the, quicker, uh, the longer definition that we gave was this, is that righteous, the righteousness of God is God's perfect way to declare unrighteous people righteous by faith. <clears throat> what that means is, he doesn't say, when you stop sinning, I'll make you righteous. When you get your life perfectly together and presentable, then I'll call you righteous. He actually says the exact opposite. Romans 5 later is going to say, while we were yet sinners, say it with me if you know it, Christ died for us. He doesn't say, clean up your life and then I'll make you my child. While we're in our filth, in our sin, far from God, Jesus came and died for us. The righteousness of God is given to us apart from our goodness. Before we've done anything good for God, by faith alone, God says, I call you, I declare you righteous. Not because you are righteous or perfect in your life, but I'm calling you righteous. That's what he lays over us. Now, why does that matter? Why is that good news? Because we're about to read some really bad news. And if the gospel is not precious to you, then when you hear the bad news, the bad news will make you flee from a holy God. And we're looking at a really difficult passage of Scripture. So why must the, why must the righteousness of God matter to us? Because it is the only way to be in right standing with God, and it's the only way to actually look at ourselves honestly. Now, there's two things that you're going to see in this kind of section, that the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, but something else is revealed in this section as well. The wrath of God is revealed to us tonight. So if you would, would you guys read with me in Romans 1, verses 18, 18 to 32. You guys got it? I believe we have it up on the screen. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress or hold down the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely <clears throat> his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, that's humanity, although humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking or darkened in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. 20, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, look at this, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, how does God respond? Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, <clears throat> because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Stop right there. We'll get the rest of it here in a moment. Number one, 
Why do we all need the gospel? Why do we need the gospel? Number one, because the condition of all people. The con- if, you're right, if you're taking notes, the point number one is the condition of all people. The condition of all people is extremely broken. <clears throat> there is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of pull two different things, if we can grab that on the slide, is the, con- the condition. First, we would say that I, I do want to make a, a, a subtle comment about God's wrath is that God's wrath is not like an explosive parent that just randomly got ticked off at you on the weekend, right? All right? It's not like he came into your room, saw that you didn't do your laundry, and now he's exploded and burning half the house down, right? That's not the wrath of God, right? Now, maybe I'm just confessing my own sin, okay? All right, but the wrath of God is, the Bible, when it talks about God, it says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast what? Love. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God is not quick to his anger. So the, the anger of God, the wrath of God, doesn't look like some ticked off parent or grandma, right? It looks a little bit different. God's anger is, look at me, God's anger is right. God's anger is true. It's good. If God has called something evil, it's because it is. If God has called something wrong, it's because he has never been wrong. He set it up. He defined and created the boundaries and the order of everything, how human relationships are to look like, how money is to be treated, how others are to be treated. When Jesus says, "You you are to treat money this way, I'll give you an example. Later in the Gospels, if you're taking notes, I believe this is in Matthew 6, is Jesus is going to say things like, you cannot serve God and money. You will either love one or hate the other, right? Serve one. Only one of those can be your master. Now, a lot of times we say, no, 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 no. I can have God and I can uh, make the pursuit of getting a lot of money be the whole goal of my life. I've got my salvation, now I can go get all, get all my money, and that'll be the concern of my mind and heart. It's not to say it's wrong to have money. It's wrong for money to have you. You with me? There's a difference. You, Christians can do wonderful things with their money. Some of you, the Lord is going to make you filthy rich one day, and you're going, Lord, Lord, if that's the curse that you'll put on my life, God, curse me with riches and I will honor you with my riches, right? But I'm, I'm joking, but some of you, you're actually, you are so talented and so successful. It, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna be astounded and people are just gonna elevate you because God has gifted you. But the, a moment is gonna come when God is gonna say to you, is your money your identity or am I your God? What are you gonna do with your money? And now we see that and we go, well, yeah, that makes sense. We should care for others with our money. And there's the same conversation when it comes to our sexuality. When God says, I made your body. I made your body. I know how human relationships work. I, I can lead you into flourishing and good and truth. We ought to say, yes, Lord. How, however you say that human sexuality is to work and what I'm supposed to do with my body and how I'm supposed to honor you with my body and how I can hurt myself 
by saying, I don't care about God's way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want with my body. Romans 1 is about to show us how that is actually going to shame your body and even hurt your body. A couple things. God's wrath, look back with me in the text. Look in verse 18. I want you to hear from God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that's men and women, that's mankind, who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. What that means is this. All godlessness and wickedness. The first speaks to someone disregarding God's kind of rule over the world. The second speaks to how people are, treat one another. So if you've not loved your neighbor, if you've not cared for someone else, if you've seen someone who's hungry or without clothes and you've said, eh, tough, or someone said, hey, I, I'm down on my luck. I need, the, some of us have, have mistreated one another when we could have gave to someone else. The two greatest commandments, if you know them, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your, look with me. Everyone say vertical. Vertical goes, oh, there we go, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's vertically. But love your neighbor as yourself, say horizontally. In the two greatest commands, Jesus deals with a vertical relationship between us and God. And then as we love our neighbor, he deals with our horizontal relationships with me and you and your friends and everybody you're sitting next to in this room. You right? So you, you may say, well, I'm not sinning against God, but if you're mistreating your sister... If you're mistreating your brother, if you hate someone in this room, or you operate in unforgiveness, you are sinning against your neighbor. You guys tracking with me? I know tonight is going to be a little bit heavier, so I want everyone to take a breath. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Two things about our condition. If we'll go back to that slide. There's two quick ways I think I can explain it. Humanity has rejected God and replaced God. And this is what God is pouring his wrath out against. Look back with me in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. Now, um, you might say something like this. Well, we're all born in sin, right? So when people say no to Jesus, when they say, no, I don't, I don't believe in God, maybe they're just that way because uh, they don't know any better, right? I've thought that before. But the text, if you're reading it, he says things like clearly perceived. They are without excuse. It seems the way Paul is writing is that our sin does not rescue us from the fact that deep down, look at me, every man and woman on this earth knows that God exists. And what we do with that truth is we take it and we shove it down and we say, no, thank you. We reject God. We say no to God in our natural born condition without Jesus. Before we met Jesus, before you have met Jesus in this room, you are rejecting God and you are replacing God with something else. That is, this, that is the state. It's like the kid who... Y'all have that kid in your classes who uh, he puts in his AirPods the whole semester? Y'all got that? Those kids, maybe some of y'all are that kids, right? 
maybe you got a bad teacher or someone, you know, in your class, you don't want to hear their voice or they snore or whatever, right? But imagine that kid that the whole semester, he just keeps putting the AirPods in. As soon as class starts, he puts his AirPods in and he falls asleep on his desk. At the end of the semester, are you tracking with me? The end of the semester, he flunks the class. He fails the class. And he has the audacity to walk up to the teacher and say, I failed because you weren't a good enough teacher. And she's like, hey, crazy dude, you didn't listen to a word I said. You blocked me out and rejected all of my teaching. And in the same way, on that final day when God comes again, when Jesus splits the sky and brings his kingdom to this earth, no one will say, I, it's your fault. You didn't tell me. I didn't know God existed. No one will have that excuse anywhere on the planet. No one. And that is a terrifying thought. But it's inescapable. And I would be unfaithful to the Word of God to not say that to you. That this is the human condition, is that we've rejected God, but also we've replaced God. Look back with me in verses 21 to 24. Matter of fact, let's, let's pick up in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God um, they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what does God do? He gave them up. I've thought the wrath of God would mean he would punish them right there and kill them. What, what is this wrath of God? This, this wrath of God says he just gives them what they want. He says, you don't want me? You don't want to know me? You don't want to know why? You exist and who I am and what the purpose of your life really is? God says, okay. And in his passive wrath, he just says, take it. You don't want me? Then take what you really want. And God gives them over to their desires. And that, friends, is a terrifying place to be. Where you say, what I really want is not God, I want his stuff. I want the people that he made. I want the money that he made, the food that he made, the drink that he made, the sports that he made. I want to I eat up God's world, but I don't want to give him any praise for a shred of it. That is what's happened when we've replaced God. We've exchanged God. We've served creation. It's basically that we have cheated on God. We've committed adultery against God. It's saying you can't, satisfy me, God. We think something else can make us happier than that. There's a really popular author. His name is David Foster Wallace. He was not a Christian uh, that I know of unless he turned to Christ on his deathbed, but he was a very popular postmodern author. He wrestled his whole life with, do, why do I matter? Why are we here? Like, he just had that existential, like, what's my existence? Why? He, he was a beautiful author. You could look up uh, one of his most famous speeches. It's called This is Water. And that's kind of where this quote comes from. And he's saying this as a non-Christian. Here's what he says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not 
worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He's saying that as a non-Christian. He's a secular agnostic. And he's saying everybody worships. You know what you're worshiping? Your self-image. You're worshiping what others think of you. Maybe you're worshiping how your parents feel about you. Maybe you're worshiping this future vision of what you're going to be in college and this athlete. Or maybe it's, I want that girl to think rightly of me, man. That's why I get a haircut twice a week, dude. I, I want to, I want twice a week. I miss haircuts twice a week. You know, I made bald, bald jokes three times at this point, all right? But let's move on. Idolatry, whatever you're living for, it makes you look insane. That's what it is. It makes you look insane. Imagine this. Imagine you walked into this room tonight, Casey gets invited up to the stage, and I pull a goat onto the stage. Bah, goat, do goats bat? I don't know. But, and then I said, worship our God. We'd be like, you psycho, what is this? What sort of paganism is this? Right? And in the same way, we look so foolish when we worship our appearance on Instagram, when we worship our sports team or what a coach thinks of us, when, we, when, when the opinion of that guy is the only thing I want, I just want him to tell me I'm beautiful. I just want her to see me. When that's what's driving you crazy at night, I just want perfect A's so my parents will be proud of me Friends, look at me. You might have an idol in your heart that you want more than what God thinks of you. I don't care if you're 11 or 60. You, you might have an idol that needs to be removed and dislodged from your heart. And it would be the mercy of God to expose and remove that idol from your heart. When I was in junior high, I, uh, I, my body stopped producing testosterone. It was terrible, right? From the time I was nine to about 14, all the other boys were, I'll just say growing and keep it, keep the language uh, PG, right? All the other boys were growing like natural boys and my body uh, stopped. And in ninth grade, I was four foot nine, 89 pounds. So probably shorter than the majority of girls in this room, right? I was the smallest boy going into ninth grade. You're like, you're six foot tall. How, what happened, right? So here's what happened. I went to the doctor, and the, basically an endocrinologist gave me three shots of testosterone, and my body exploded into puberty, and I finally grew, right? But before that, when I was little, I went into ninth grade, and I just... I wanted a way to, to show myself. Everyone, it, it was, it, girls would be like, you're so fun to hang out with, and you're so cute, but like, I won't date you, right? So like, ninth grade was terrible, right? I'm like, all the girls, and I'm like, hey, dude, I'm like an athlete, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, like, for real, like, I love football, and they're like, me too. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I play football. And they're like, that's cute. Anyway, in ninth grade, that's, you know how bad that is for a ninth grade boy? I'm like, trust me, one day you're going to regret this, homegirl, okay? But, <laughs> but in ninth grade, 
I was on the B team. I played eight or ten plays a game, right? So that's not a lot. You should laugh at that too. Okay, but anyway, so, so in ninth grade, in ninth grade, I became, I became our, our, our mascot of the team. So I would play at five o'clock. I would play in the B team football game. And then for the A-team game, I would put on this massive bird suit, right? Um, and we were the Harwood Blackhawks. So basically, I'd play in the game. I'd come out, and all of a sudden, I'd have a massive bird suit on. And it was way bigger than, than I should, right? And I would trip players. I would go, the cheerleaders would be doing their dances, and I would just come up and like start, start bouncing and just ruining their, their routine. And they're like, and I thought, because I have this, this covering on me, I can act obnoxious. I can ruin these girls' dance. I can trip boys as they're going onto the field. I can be wild. And you know what? I can finally be seen. They'll look, they'll look at me. They'll see me. People will think, you're funny. You matter. I, I desperately just wanted to be seen and known. And I wonder how many of you tonight, you may not be a mascot, but deep down, you, you're covered in some sort of fake bird suit. You're covered in some sort of covering. And you just desperately want someone to see you, love you, and know you. And you, you're terrified to let anyone else know the real you. And in the gospel, what God wants to do is, lift, is take your mask off. Because God sees you as you truly are. I want to ask you a couple questions to, that might help us reveal if there's an idol in our hearts. Friends, where are you finding your security? Where are you finding your sense of joy? Where are you finding true peace? Whose opinion are you desperate for? Idols can involve money, our bodies, approval, achievements, family, many other things. And all those things, those things can be gifts. That, hear me rightly. Family's good. Money's good. Relationships are good. All kids are good, college careers are good, achievements are good. But if you make any of those things God, they will crush you. Those things cannot satisfy you. Those things cannot be what you live for. And if you are, it's you, you are replacing God with something else. Which leads me to number two. What is the consequence for all people? The consequence for all people. Look back. In verse 24 through, 20, uh, through 32. God, to people who have replaced him, God, it says this in verse 24, God gave them up to the lust in their hearts, to, the dis, uh, to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He's speaking of sexual immorality and in different ways that they are hurting their body. And then 25, why did God do this? Because they... They changed, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, I'm about to read a list of all, so that's, that's everyone say idolatry. Idolatry is what's in your heart, right? But then what comes out of your heart are all these different types of sins I'm about to read. So idolatry, as it starts to overflow from your heart, starts to actually take root into real actions. Say actions. All these sins right here are about to be actions that can happen in your life if you have idolatry in your heart. Look what he says. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women 
exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men in receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over. This is now back to all of humanity, not just those who are practicing homosexual relationships. And then 28, it says, And since they, that's humanity, did not see fit to acknowledge God, He gave them over to a debased mind. Verse 29, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, coveting, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, that's prideful. They boast, they invent evil. And look at how it closes. Disobedient to parents. He puts murdering, gossiping, homosexuality, evil, coveting, and murder. And then right at the end of that, he says, little 11-year-olds who are disobedient to their parents. You know, do you see what he's done? He has taken all of our sin. I imagine in a room this size, every one of you have committed or will commit one of those sins probably multiple, multiple times in your life. And, the, and look at how it closes. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do them, they start to give approval to those who practice them. Friends, this is why humanity is under the wrath of God. Not just because of our idolatry, but that idolatry begins to work out in different practices like that. And so therefore, what he's saying is, this is the wrath of God, for God to just give you the actions that your heart deeply wants. Now, the good news is this. God's full wrath for now is held back. If God wanted to, he could release all his wrath in this moment and punish every one of us, but he does not leave us in that condition. He does not leave us there. He comes after us in the gospel. This is why the gospel is such good news. You will not feel the beauty and the salvation that Jesus offers you unless you've first felt your own sense of weakness, brokenness, and idolatry. I want to ask you a question. When I read that list, did anything pop up where you said, that's me? You don't have to answer out loud, but be honest. Anything in that list, anything, Paul is saying, we are worthy and sit rightly under the wrath of God. And therefore, this is the good news of the gospel, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That go back to verse 16 in chapter 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Pause. Everyone, everyone in that list, every type of sinner, every, whether you're disobedient to parents, whether you're evil, whether you're, you're idolatrous or coveting or greedy or, or have committed any type of sexual act, pornography, same-sex attraction, if you've given yourself to same-sex acts or, or, or anything that, any, any of those premarital sex, all of that, 
that those things shame our bodies because we're saying, I don't care about God's rule and God's ways. I'm going to do all of this in my own way. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Meaning, if you're in any of those camps tonight, you're not too far gone. There's hope for you. Jesus came to pour out his life, to live a perfect life that you could not live. Die a death on the cross that you, des- you deserve to die. And then offer you forgiveness, righteousness, restoration. That when you receive Christ, you receive the, ho- the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he starts to change your affections. How many of you right now, you've been walking with Jesus for over a year? Raise your hand. How many of you would say, I've been walking with Jesus, I've been a Christian for uh, two or one to six months. Anybody in that range? That you've recently become a follower of Jesus, okay? How many of you have been following Jesus for 10 years or more? You people, keep your hands up. When you first started following Jesus, you can put your hands up. When you first started following Jesus, were there sins and patterns and attitudes of your heart that you thought you would never overcome? And 10 years later, you look back and you say, I'm not perfect. I've still sinned, but I'm more patient. I'm more gentle. I have more self-control. I am more loving than I used to be. I'm more generous. I'm more kind. I'm quicker when I sin. I don't hide from God for weeks and weeks and weeks. I go to God because I believe the cross atoned for my past, present, and my and tomorrow's sins. That's the evidence that you're growing in Christ. Not that you're never sinning, but that when you do sin, you run quickly back to the cross. That you come quickly back to the mercy of God found only in the gospel. The gospel is not just what saves us. The gospel changes us. A lot of times we think, I believed the gospel, and now I have to live this Christian life in my own strength. And that is exhausting. That is not true. The same gospel that saves you by grace is the same grace that will make you holy, that will make you strong, that will make you self, uh, have self-control and actually make you be a person where your dignity is starting to come back to you. How many of you, before you walked with Jesus, were in so much shame, and all this time later, you're like, I'm not who I used to be. That shame is gone. Maybe it's not all the way gone, but Jesus is restoring back to you your dignity. That's what he wants to give to us in the gospel. And that is the cure for all people. That's my final point, is that's, the, that's our cure. The cure for all people is to come to Jesus. He can restore us. He can give us back what, what our hearts most long for. And so I want to close with this. What do we do with this? Three things. Three things. Be saved, be sane, and be sent. You're like, what? Be saved, be sane, and be sent. In the gospel, here's what happens. He can save us. He can bring us out of a life where something else is our God where something else is ruling and, and, and controlling us, he can bring us back into salvation. And when that happens, do you know what happens? Look at me. He restores our sanity. And you come back to Jesus and you're like, I don't need his approval. I don't need their voice over me. 
My pastor says it this way. I love it. He says, when the opinion of the one who matters most matters most to you, then you'll be free. When the opinion of Jesus matters most to you, only then you'll be free. That can be yours in the gospel. And you, he gives you your sanity back where you start to think rightly. And then lastly, some of you think tonight, you think God can't use somebody like me. Stuck in my sin, stuck in my ways, brand new in Christ. I can barely understand the Bible when I read it. I'm trying to figure out community. I'm trying to obey Jesus. I'm trying to get discipled. I'm trying to do all these things. God can never use somebody like me. Do you know that he flipped the world upside down with some teenagers that he called his 12 disciples? Jesus, it's not about you. We get so obsessed with ourselves. It's about him. We come to Jesus and he can beautify you, empower you, and send you into this world and into his mission. He wants to, and he's going to. And some of you, you will find the thrill of partnering with God. God has great plans for you. Some of you are going to plant churches. Some of you are going to minister to people. Some of you are going overseas to the nation. Some of you are going to have so much power and boldness and confidence that right now you don't have. But as you walk with Jesus, he is going to make you like him. That's our great hope. It's not just that he saves us, but that he renews us, restores us, and make us, makes us like him. I want to take a minute to pray over you guys. And I'll invite the band back up. If you guys would, would you just take a moment and pray with me? Friends, we all need the gospel. Our condition apart from Jesus is broken. But the cure is offered to us in Christ. He's saying, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And what's offered to us is this freedom from shame, this forgiveness, this salvation. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus tonight, and the, and the Lord has been over the last, this morning and this weekend, you get a sense that the Lord is working in your heart, and you're like, I know I'm a sinner apart from God, that I desperately need Jesus, and I've looked to the cross. I want to throw myself upon God's mercy and say, Jesus, save me, rescue me. There's no magical prayer to pray. It's not repeating the perfect prayer. It's being honest in your heart before God. The Bible says, if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so if that's where you're at tonight, just in, in your own heart towards God, will you say something like this to him? Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I have things in my heart that I love and want more than you. I'm asking you to forgive me, to wash me. Thank you that on the cross you paid for my sin. You lived the life I couldn't died my death, and I believe you rose from the dead. I put my faith in you. Maybe even take a moment. I'll be quiet for a minute. You just do business with God for a minute. For some of you who are Christians and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, I imagine there's things in your life that you think, I, I just can't break free of that. It's got its, it's got its grip on me. I do have an idol. 
I do have something that's competing with Jesus, that sits higher in my heart. Will you just ask Jesus, take that from me? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something with school or a parent. Maybe it's a dream you thought you had and it's about to die. You just ask the Lord, Jesus, I want you to be first in my heart. I want no one else other than you, God. Take a moment and ask the Lord if there's anything that sits in your heart higher than you. Maybe you're at the place where you're like, I love the Lord. I'm ready to see what, what Jesus has for me. I'm ready to partner in his mission. Would you ask God, take a moment and say, God, what do you want to do with my life? All those who Jesus saves, he sends into his purposes in this world. God wants to use you. So ask him, God, how do you want to use me? What are my gifts? Show me. Give me new passions. Give me a part to play in your kingdom. Show me, show me what you've made me for. And ask him that the Lord this weekend would show you that. Lord God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters in this room. Would you speak to us and lead us? You're worthy of it all, Jesus. So we trust you and we ask that for all these things, 200 or 300 of us in this room, we all need your wisdom and your guidance. So would you lead us in your way? Give us wisdom. You're a big God. You're mighty and strong and loving and powerful, and you can lead all of us. It's not too much from you, for you. Bless us for your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just dance with us. We're going to sing a couple more songs.